Good morning. My name is Corinne, and I help in guest services and also um, help with care for our church family. Um, this morning, we are going to be reading in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 22. It's on page 151 on the blue Bibles in front of you. Um, if you guys don't have a Bible, feel free to take these home. This is our, our gift to you. All right. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill, and when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my sight, that I might see it, might, may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I might eat from her hand. Then David sent home, to, sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat it. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. From him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I might eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her hand and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up! Go! But she said to him, No, my brother, for this, wrong, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man whom served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? 
Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Corinne. That's heavy yet again. So if you've been with us, uh, following the Bible doesn't get you uh, children's stories all the time. It gets you real life stories. And that's, here's another one of these. Um, we're actually going to kind of hit on pieces from chapter 13 through 18. If you're joining us for the first time, we're just walking through the, li- the lives of these three famous men, at least according, if you're Jewish or if you're Christian, Saul, David, and Solomon, they're the first kings of Israel. David is the line from which Jesus comes, so a very important part of two faiths, uh, Jewish faith and Christian faith. Uh, but we're looking at the life of David here, and this, is, this extended section of verse, chapter 13 through 18 is sort of like, Uh, Let's not look at the kingdom anymore. Let's kind of zoom in and peek in the window of David's house. How is David's family doing? What you just read is the life of how David's family's doing. And it's not great. This just whole message reminds me of this painting that hangs in the office of the church I used to work at. So Norman Walkwell, it's called Sunday Morning. So there's mom. This is Sunday morning. There's kids. There's dad. Checked out from the faith development and church going of his family. And there's his son, the only other male in the family, peeking over, longing for the day he can be just like dad and repeat the cycle of that painting over and over. And this was a painting long ago. And this story of David is long ago. What's this story about? It's about, I think, a lot of things. But what I see is this predominant theme of passivity in men especially when it comes to the work they're called to with the closest relationships. Their spouses, their in-laws, their kids, their grandkids. It's a story of what happens in a home when a dad checks out. And here's what I've just been thinking about. The way God designed, God designed everything to work the way it's supposed to work. Plants work the way they're supposed to work. All you engineers, all you computer people, all you're doing is just tapping into what God already knows. In the home and in with men in particular, here's how I often wish God would have made it work, like a, domino, like a set of dominoes. And your home was the first domino fall, and that had to fall to knock over everything else that's going to fall for you to be successful in work, and outside of work, and your hobbies. But that is not at all how it works. Often what happens is your first domino, the home domino, never falls, and the guy's lives are all the other dominoes are falling over, and there's success in work, there's money, there's attaboys, there's adoration, there's affirmation, there's retirement parties, and that home domino stands untouched because of the passivity we see in men, in particular David here. So here's what we're going to do today. It's real simple. We're going to look at passivity in three different angles. David's passivity, Adam's passivity. Adam Cook was here earlier. I don't know if he's here. I'm not talking about Adam Cook, although he'll be (laughs) implicated in this if you're Adam. And then our passivity. So ladies in the room, you're like, oh, what's this have to do with me? I think it'll be, uh, it might unearth some pain, but I think it's encouraging, and I think it's, we're a family, we're in this together. Um, So we're going to link arms and come after our men this morning and hopefully lift them back up before they leave today. So I want to pray for our time together. God, as a man, I don't stand up here lacking in the irony of me talking about passivity and the ways you can be gifted and skilled and successful. Uh, 
in a lot of ways and neglect the home. So God, uh, help me preach from a place of integrity and honesty, but of passion and power so that our church is better because our men are better. Lord, we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. This is the story of David's family. There's three characters, Amnon, Tamar, Absalom. He has way more kids than that, but these are important. Amnon is his firstborn. It's his heir apparent. The man we just saw rape his sister, Amnon. That's David's firstborn son. Tamar is one of his beautiful daughters. And Absalom is one of his beautiful sons. Later on, we're not going to look at this passage, but it says his hair is so long. It's beautiful. He's this gorgeous. It's sort of like David's 2.0. Like that guy is David, the second coming. These are the three children we're going to look at. is Amnon, Tamar, Absalom. So what happens to Amnon? I want to read again what Corinne did. Let's go to chapter 13. Again, Amnon, firstborn, heir apparent. Let's read about David's home life, 1 through 14. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So stop right there. So we get that's a sister, not from the same mother, but they're sisters. Um, Fast forward, go to verse 6. His friend tells him some advice. Hey, pretend like you're sick. Get her in the same room as you. Verse 6. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please, the king would be David, said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David, the king, sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house. Prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in a sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. Amnon said, send everyone out, everyone out from him. Verse 10, then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cake she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. I just want to pause right there. If you know the Old Testament, which most of us don't, Judges ends with this echo of, not even, This is being done in Israel? I get that Canadians do this, but we're married. Like, <laughs> and now she the king's daughter, what's happening? We're Israel. We have God's decrees. Just a side note, verse 13. As for me, where would I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And he being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. So that's Amnon, who's stronger, grabs hold, and violates her. So whatever David did last week, however you view the sexual exploitation, this is even worse. He physically takes her and takes advantage of his sister. Now that we're not going to spend a lot of time on these characters, I want to zoom out and think about David. Where is David in all this? The only mention, verse 7, then David sent to Tamar saying, go to your brother. What's so ironic and sad is last week, if you're here, David sending, 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 sending to do his bidding and to do his taking and to do his exploiting. And now he's sort of this in the background character who is being told 
to send to get for another person. He becomes a passive participant in the evil his son is doing to his daughter. It's just interesting because that's kind of what happens. You tend to check out. David is not, I wrote this, David is not the one choosing to sin, planning to sin, or acting out his sin. But somehow he is close enough to be involved, but not intentional enough to be doing anything about what's happening. It's just a fascinating picture of David as we look into his home. Let's continue reading. Go jump ahead. Verse 23. I want to read 23, verse 33. What happens to his firstborn, his heir apparent, his boy, Amnon? After two full years, time is a big thing in this. I think it's the way the author says, like David's sitting on his duff for a long time. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's son. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, and then kill him. Do not fear, for I have not commanded you. Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. Now while they're on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons so that it's a miscommunication. David thinks all of his boys are dead. And not one of them is left. Verse 31. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shema, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that all have been killed, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, not let, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead. For Amnon alone is dead. So what happened to Amnon and his son? He's dead. Is David the reason he's dead? No, I would not go that far. But where is David? The most we get in here is he's grieved and he's weeping and he's tearing his clothes. And that's going to be a theme throughout David is he's emotionally expressive with each of these sad, destructive things that happen to his kids. He's very sad, and it's very similar. Almost all the guys I meet with have strong feelings towards their wife and their kids. And a lot of them have a hard time taking whatever that is and communicating it to wife, to child one, child two. And we see David, like he always has these emotions and he's never quite connected to the heart of the people in his home. Let's look at Tamar. What about Tamar, his daughter? Let's go back to verse 14. Just to remind you what happened, but he would not listen. That would be Amnon, the big brother. Being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he Loved her. That is a very sad passage. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. 
But she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away. Is this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you just did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young, the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And she lived a desolate woman is what the next verse says. What happens to his daughter? She's violated by her son. Is David to blame? But where is David? Even the author, the very next verse, verse 23, just gives you, so his daughter is raped. Verse 23 says, after two full years. I don't have a daughter. Some of you have daughters. Something happens to your daughter. If somebody pokes your daughter, some of you are, it's go time, in the pickup and you're heading to the house. Tamar is raped by her brother. And all I can say is, two years later, Absalom, the other brother, is now trying to stir in emotion, David, to get him to act to do something, which should have been done two years prior. This is passivity. This is David's passivity. Now, what about Absalom, the final character? Then we'll get to Adam and us. Let's read verse uh, 37 through 39. So Absalom is the remaining alive son. He killed his brother Amnon. Verse 37, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Ahimehud, Ahimehud, yeah, great name, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. Again, the timing is like just highlighting the dysfunction of the family in the increased time with the dysfunction continuing on. Verse 39, and the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So Absalom is alive. He wanted David to do something. What ensues, if you, you can go and read this another time, it gets crazy. I just want to give you a few highlights. We don't have to turn to all of them. But here's what happens. Go to chapter 14, verse 28. So Absalom flees. He comes back to Jerusalem, hoping to make amends. Verse 28 gives you a picture of the father-son relationship. 1428. So Absalom lived two full years now in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So his son is back, the son who avenged his daughter, and there's a two-year gap where they're in the same city and they never interact. Go to chapter, very next, this is uh, 14, verse 30. Again, we'll fly through this. He wants, he's like, all right, I need to see my dad. I need to see the king. What does he do? Verse 30. Then he said to his servant, See Joab's field next to his, is next to mine. He has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Just right there. That is a cry for attention. Joab is David's like main commander. Absalom's in the same city. David's not seeing him. Hey, guys, let's go light my dad's number two's field on fire. That's where we're at in this relationship. So he goes and lights it on fire. Uh, let's go. keep going. Go to chapter 15, verse 6. David finally gets a meeting with him. We won't go there. They sort of have amends. They say, hey, good to see you. Yeah, whatever. 
Absalom hangs out in the city, and he starts to get this idea, I'm going to take over my dad's kingdom. And he starts to gather men. Chapter 15, verse 6. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom began to steal the hearts of the men from Israel. So he started to stand at the gate and offer advice and wisdom and war advice and war wisdom to the men, and he started to have a gathering. It'd be like in a church like this, you got Pastor Josh, and then someone here is like, you know what, I think Pastor Josh doesn't talk about enough. This. And you start to talk about it in your small group. And then you start to, and you start to gather. And this isn't like, I have someone on blast, I'm just saying, <laughs> this is, you're like, he knows! My essential oils business has been exposed. But that's what's happening. Essential oils business has taken off. Chapter 15, verse 13 and 14, it becomes so big that David has to run, which is just a picture of manhood gone wrong. There's a throne for you to be sitting in, doing your kingly duties, and you've left because you're scared. Verse 13, and a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David runs and flees and abandons his home and his kingdom. The dysfunction is just on full display. The anointed one of Israel is on the run. This is where it just gets gross and weird, and I don't know how much we can relate, but now Absalom's getting advice on like how to like provoke a war with his dad and like really get it to him. And he asks some people, hey, what do you think, what do you think? One guy says, here's what you need to do. Go into Jerusalem, go to the Holy of Holies, go to the spot where worship is done and where all David's concubines are and have relations with his concubines in public for all to see as a way to say, there's a new man in town. And I don't need to read it, but he does that. Oh in chapter, Genesis like, oh my. <laughs> it backfires. It like stirs up David's loyal men. They're like, I'm gonna, I never liked Absalom. And this for sure does not bode well. And there becomes this war, and they're going to fight. But David is like this conflicted guy of, he's got this kingly, divine calling. He's also a man. He's also a dad. He's also, and he goes to the people and he says, hey, Whatever you do, just be kind to Absalom for my sake. And the men go to war and Absalom's killed, obviously. And this is how, because they're like, I'm not going to listen to you, you're an idiot, and this guy's an idiot. End of chapter 18, verse 31. This is the end of this little story about David's three kids. And behold, the Cushite came, the Cushite said, Good news, my lord. The Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, It is well with the young or the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite said, May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against him forever be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. There's his emotions again. And as he went, he said, Oh my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh Absalom, my son, my son my son. It's the first time he calls him his son. He's dead. And the first time he says, my son is at his funeral. So like there's a lot of ways you can describe what happened and what's going on with dysfunction would be one. I mean, I just think passivity is dripping all over this if we look at it through the lens of David 
who's supposed to be the king of Israel, the anointed one, the chosen one, leading God's people, and especially leading even his own family. But you just see a constant passivity. Like most of the sin in here, you can't directly tie back to David. David and Bathsheba, that's 100% on David. Turn the page, now look at his home. Amnon's doing what? Absalom's doing what? What happened to Tamar? Who's to blame? And David's like, this is like a picture of men at their worst. Like, huh? So what my kids do when they know. And that's what we just watched with David. Now here's the thing. If this is just a character trait of David, it's an interesting thing to study, and it might hit some of us in this room. But if this is something deeper, more ingrained in humanity and men in general, then it's something we have to dig into and talk about. Like this, is this something that is in us men? And I would say 100% yes. So I want to go and look at Adam's passivity now. If we talk about the sin of man and we try to find simple categories to describe how men generally fall, I think there's two categories you can look at. One is sort of over-aggression. We see that all over. I mean, we got, you, my son asked me, what's going on in Ukraine? Did they get Putin out of their head? And I said, no, not yet. Why? Because there's this aggression in men that is sinful. We saw it with David and Bathsheba. We see it with David with all the blood that he sheds. But there's also this thing in men that is like innately checking out when people need you to be most dialed in to the moment. You kind of fall off the horse on one of those two ways. Whether you're an eight-year-old boy, whether you're Owen Elder, whether you're Steve Silliman, whether you're Josh Watt, aggression, passivity. There's a quote from one of the guys that I'm reading the commentaries on this. He, Thomas, he's out of Oklahoma Baptist. He says this, the greatest temptation men face then as now is not to outright wickedness, hear that, but to the smoother but equally destructive path of apathy and an action. And you ladies in the room that are married or dating, like now's not the time to like just listen, take notes, pray about it. But this is a real issue. And I just want to show you where theologically I stand on this pretty confidently. Go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. The first man is named Adam. The first woman is named Eve, is what we believe God did. Genesis 2, 15 through 17, I want to read. This is when there was just God and Adam. Eve was not around yet. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam, here's... Life, here's the rules I've given you. Listen to me. Eve is not here yet. Fast forward. When does Eve show up? Go to chapter 3, verse 6. This is not the first time we see her, but this is maybe her most infamous moment. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Who sinned? 
if you look at Genesis, it seems like Eve. But Adam was around when God gave the rules. Now Adam and Eve are both here, and it says Eve is talking to a snake. She eats, gives some to her husband. So Adam is, and here's, there's a big theological debate. Like, is Adam right there? Here's what I say. Adam is close enough to enjoy some fruit and close enough to have changed the situation, but he chose not to. He is passive. He's sort of fading to the background as Eve steps in. And if you fast forward, the rest of the Bible puts the blame of this moment 100% on Adam, which is just fascinating and like totally is a punch gut to our cultural moment. It's like, equal rights, no, no, no. It's like, God, here's what God would say. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. Death reigned from the time of Adam, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did. Many died by the trespasses of one man. This is all Romans 5. By the trespasses of the one man, death reigned through that one man. Through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners. Who sinned God? Adam did. What was the sin? Like, where do I pin it down? I don't know, but I see a picture of this, and I think there's something breaking in what it means to be a man and to be masculine and to be a husband and be a father from the very beginning of one's sin entered the world. And we read it in David, and now we get to talk about it in us. It takes us to our final point of our passivity. I want to just remind you of the painting. Like there's an image that you've created in the people around you, men, in your wife, in your kids, in your grandkids, in foster kids and adopted kids, in church kids, Adam Sandoval's here. My kids love Adam Sandoval. And they have a beautiful painting in their mind of what manhood is from Adam Sandoval. So this is not all. But there is an image being formed based off how well you step into this. So how do we deal with our passivity? Here's the first thing, and it's simple. Just name it. Like, call it what it is. There's a passage in Ephesians, and there's passages like this all over the Bible. Paul says this, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are the light of the world, so walk as children of light. What does it mean to be in darkness? People think evil, like scary. It also means like ambiguity and lack of clarity, especially in language. Like if we step out into the culture, the cultural moment, there's this huge ambiguity over gender and sexuality. Where that come from? That comes from Satan, who's like, confusing the terms that God set forth. God made male, God made female, God made marriage. And now it's all, now let's go back into the home. There's also confusion. Let's not be confusing, men. When you're seeing it, when your spouse is seeing it, when your people around you are seeing it, if you're a young, single person and you're in church community and other people are seeing it and you call it what it is, say, I am being passive. Passivity. That's what this is right now. Not, well, you know, I, you, uh, you know, I'm the best at, you know, well, you know, you know I got the words, and, I, and Aubrey's like, passive! <laughs> she doesn't say that, but if I let her speak, <laughs> I'm being serious. Call it what it is. And I'll just give you my definition of passivity. 
I didn't look up a dictionary because I'm like, I don't really care what they say. Here's what I think it means. It's a lack of presence, awareness, and action for those God has called you to. It's a lack of presence, and then once you're present, an awareness, and then once you're aware, action to the people God has called you to. Dads and stepdads and grandpas and boyfriends and whoever you are in this room. That right there is passivity. And when you see it, call it what it is. Do not beat around the bush. Call it what it is. I am being passive. I like this definition too because I gave it. But so much you come into the church. I was listening to Pastor Love from Denton, Texas when we lived in Texas. I mean, he's just a cowboy guy. Like, You start to talk about masculinity and you get so just reflecting what the personality of the guy on stage. Like, you don't need to be a cowboy. If you're an artist, be an artist. If you're an engineer, be an engineer. If you're introverted, be introverted. If you're extroverted, be extroverted. But you better have a presence, an awareness, an action with the people God has called you to. And if you don't, confess it and say what it is. I'm being passive. That's the first thing, is name it. Second thing is investigate it. Why am I doing this? This is the hardest part for guys. My sons get home from school. How was school? Normal. Tuesday, how was school? Normal. Wednesday, how was school? Normal. Let me guess. You're right. Normal. Guys don't have the ability to go deeper, so this is going to be hard. But I wrote down a few reasons on why you can. And I tried to, this is what my quiet time often is in the morning. It's me like trying to get to my motives and stuff. Like, why am I doing this? Why am I so mad at this? Here's the first one. First reason it's why you're passive is because we live in a cursed world where everything is very difficult. Just theologically, the ground is cursed. Everything is cursed. Adam, everything you do from here on out, there's going to be thorns and thistles, God tells Adam in the Garden of Eden. How much more when you go into your home is there going to be thorns and thistles with the people you care about most? It's just a hard word. It's very, we are swimming upstream. Second one, we struggle enough to learn and navigate our own emotions. David had all these emotions. He's sad, let alone the emotions of my wife. And then two, three, four, seven, 29 other people that are in your sort of field. Like, I'm having a hard time. Like, what is this right now? Okay, I'm, I'm really, I'm just hungry. Okay, I got that. I, I can press forward now. But then to navigate, I mean, just full disclosure, as my kids get older, entering into middle school, this is the hardest season of life I've had parenting. I've kind of coasted from here. And now the emotions, and I'm like, I'd rather check out because the emotions are difficult. Here's the other reason. It's a lot slower if we try to involve others into what we're doing, especially kids, especially wives. Not that they're slower, but to, it's like, I could just do this and be done with it. Like, that's discipleship. It's bringing your kids into the chore process, and it slows down the chore process tenfold, but it's better for them in the long run. It's worse for you now and your desire for a clean house, but it's better in the long run. It slows it down. Here's the biggest reason, I think, just as I meet guys. We are scared and insecure. The toughest guy in here, scared, insecure. And like there's a feeling of like, I don't know if I can do this. The work thing I can do. I can connect that thing to that thing all day long. But I step into my home and I am failing. Just admit, like, I'm scared. And I'm insecure and I don't have good models. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, we're all scared. 
Like some of the younger people in my life that I'm sort of discipling, mentoring, they're always like, man, you just seem so confident. Like you just go out, you know, you just plant a church. And like, I'm like, I'm scared all the time. Like I always step out. I'm like, I don't know. They're like, well, you don't show it. I'm like, sorry. I'm not going to like, I'm not an emotionally emotive person. That's not my thing. But I am scared a lot, especially when it comes to things I care about most, like my family. We're scared and insecure. And then here's the fifth thing. Here's another big reason why. Work and other areas of life just offer us easier targets. Even coming to church, pastoring is about people. Chandler Cruz, how was your week? Well, if you base it on Sunday and all the people singing, double fire. That was an amazing day and week for me. Well, how is it going with Lexi? Well, I don't know. Well, how do I even measure that? Like, it's just hard. Whatever field you're in, guys, it's easier to go to work and check off you did good. You come home to whatever that is and to the areas where you have influence, it's a lot harder. Just name it and investigate. Here's the third thing you should do is remind yourself of your calling. Who are you really in God's kingdom? Like according to Genesis 1 and 2, you are primarily an image bearer of God himself. He has placed his seal on you to bear the image of God. The New Testament word is disciple. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. That is your primary calling in life. But beyond that, you might be a dad. You might be a husband. But remind yourself of the callings. I would just want to read one passage to remind you of the callings before you with the people in front of you. It's out of 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter. Paul's talking about his ministry to them. He's like, I was like a nursing mom with you, slowly caring for you, cultivating you tenderly. And then I became like a father, training you and discipling you and leading you and correcting you. And then at the very end, this is how Paul would describe his ministry to these churches, these men and women that he's been pouring into. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Why? Because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan has hindered us. Why, Paul, do you want to see them so much? For what is our hope or our joy or our crown or our boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming Is it not you? You are our hope and our joy and our crown and our glory for my boasting. What is Paul saying? The people that he's been investing in. That's his hope at the end of all this. That's his trophy. That's what he gives back to God on judgment. How did I do? You're my hope. You're my joy. Men, you have that. You have a hope. You have a crown. You have a joy. And they're people that God has entrusted to you. What is your hope? What is your... Like, remind yourself, this is a godly, wonderful calling. I know it's hard. But you need moments where you remind yourself. A rally moment. Like, what am I doing? I'm doing something that matters. Yes, hope, joy, joy, crown, my glory before God is the people that he has given me. My sons, my daughters, my wife, whoever it might be. And the other thing I think you can do, just remind yourself of your calling, is look around. Like, North Mountain has amazing guys. I did not do this message pull something out of this passage, just be like, you know what, our guys suck. We have great guys here. And if you have any sort of like, I'm, I have no idea how to start this, there are plenty of guys I could connect you to of every age, every stage that are not perfect, but they are pursuing what Paul says he's pursuing, hope and joy and a crown of glory through the people that God has put in front of them. Here's the fourth thing. 
get in the game. Where is my next opportunity? So assume you walk in here like a total failure with everything I've just talked about, which might be some of you. It's a good chance. What's your like, step out of here? To go sulk? Maybe. But I also just remind you, like, Christianity is about getting back in the game over and over and over again. There's a great song that is my third-born son's. It was a song written for him by Kenny Rogers. It's about a baseball kid. He's got a ball, the greatest. Steve probably knows it. He might be the only one that knows it. I am the greatest. It's about a kid throwing up a ball, and he swings, and he misses. So he tries again, and he swings, and he misses. And then he swings, and he misses. And the kid says, even I didn't know I could pitch like that. And it's like... I am the greatest. That is a fact that we always sing it over Jude because he has endless confidence because Jude never thinks he struck out. He just thinks he's the greatest pitcher in the world. There's never a moment where he's like... (laughs) And we all need to realize like we need to get back in the game, pick up the bat, and swing again because what we're swinging at matters. Little games. We're not playing games. We're playing with eternity and people. What you're swinging at is worth it. Your wife's heart is worth it. Your fiancé's heart is worth it. Your kid's unwavering confidence and faith in this world is worth it. Not in you, but in Jesus Christ. Your grandkids and a picture of a life well lived is worth it. These are all worth it. Keep swinging. We all miss. Get in there and swing again. One of my favorite passages when I think about families, especially families that are like, I don't, I don't know if we're going to make it out of this. Paul says in Corinthians, love covers a multitude of sins. How many times have you swung and missed? Probably a lot. Love can cover that. Jesus' love over you and Jesus' love through you over your family. Love covers a multitude of sins. And then finally, here's what we need, is we need to actually have a chance to rest because none of us can work seven days, 24 hours a day, even in the areas where it's most important. And I don't mean like physical rest. I mean rest in Jesus. Where is your confidence found men as you leave here passivity is inside of you and it's waiting for moments to show itself and it's going to happen primarily with those relationships in your home that are hardest they're the ones you care about most and love most but they're also the most difficult and passivity is just waiting to come out and here's what's going to happen it's going to come out and you're not going to get to this moment where we're like, I am completely confident that I nailed that. I could teach that sermon next time. We need a confidence to stand on. And we do not stand on the confidence given to us by King David. One thing I've loved about teaching through King David is it's just made my desire for Jesus more. I'm like, King David, wow. Thank God he was not the king. But he was a king pointing to the King, Jesus Christ. We stand on the confidence of King Jesus and the gospel of his finished work, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his powerful resurrection. That is the gospel message, and we stand on that, men. That's what we stand on. That's where we rest, and that's where our confidence comes from. Not from my ability to connect with the people God has given me, but on what Jesus has done, the gospel. I want to read a little bit of a poem. It's out of a book called The Gospel Primary. 
it's a very ugly book, but it's got some beautiful stuff inside of it. But I just, I was reading this last night and I thought, this is it. So now God, men, I want you to hear this. So now God relates to me, if you trust Jesus, only with grace. The former wrath is banished without any trace. And each day I'm made a bit more as I should, his grace using all things to render me good. So this is my story. Ongoing it is. How shall I thank God for this gospel of his? A gift that keeps giving, the gospel confers the bounty of heaven each time I rehearse. Deserve it? I don't on my holiest day. But this is salvation, and herein I'll stay. Man, if you have not received the gift that keeps on giving the gospel, you will fail and fall into passivity over and over and over again. But you have the gospel that keeps giving so we can be present and aware and take action with the relationships that matter most. Amen? So I want to do something. This may bomb, but I'm swinging. If you're a man in here who feels it all like, I, need, I needed this. I didn't want this but I needed this. I just want to ask you to stand up. We're going to have people around you lay hands on you as I close out our sermon and pray for you. But if you're a guy like, I need, and if we got guys that are nailing it, then we are truly the greatest church that's ever been put on earth. But if you're a guy like, I feel convicted with my spouse, with my kids, my grandkids, and at all where I'm at in life, I just want you to stand up and we're going to lay hands on you. Corinthians says the kingdom of God does not come in word, but it comes in power. And what you need is not more words, you need more power, and that does not come from you. So these guys stand up, I want you to put your hands on them, those of you around them. And we're just going to pray. God, you could work with a man who confesses that he is not what he should be. You give grace to the humble. You oppose the proud. So I pray that your grace would come through to these men specifically in the areas where they are experiencing the desire to be passive, the desire to not press in, the desire to not seek to understand because it is hard. And this world is difficult, and emotions are a lot, and there's a lot to untangle. So give each of these men exactly what they need, where they need it, with who they need it with. And I pray that you would be the hero of each of these stories, and that the homes represented would be better because these men stood here. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.